from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello, my name is Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Aaron, Katoris, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katarina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, Emma, Emily, Galen, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so, so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. So today I thought we'd talk about the different attachment styles and disorders because I received a surprising amount of feedback about this subject from a recent podcast and asking more about it. I feel pretty strongly about attachment and the different kinds, so I'm excited to do this episode. My only disclaimer is that, as you all know, while I studied law and psychology in college and got a degree, I have continued to also study it my entire life. I do not have a PhD. This information comes from what I do know and also the stated sources. So let's just dive right in. So according to the Oxford Dictionary, attachment is defined as, quote, affection, fondness, or sympathy for someone or something feeling a bond, closeness, devotion, loyalty, end quote. Attachment theory is a psychological, evolutionary, and ethological theory concerning relationships between humans, though it occurs throughout the animal kingdom. The most important aspect of it, when it pertains to us, is that it is crucial that infants and young children develop a relationship with at least one primary caregiver for normal social and emotional development. And we know that there are stages. Attachment theory was developed by British psychologist John Bowley, and he described attachment as a, quote, lasting psychological connectedness between human beings, end quote. Bowlby was interested in understanding the separation anxiety and distress that children experience when separated from their primary caregivers. According to an article written about him on VeryWellMind.com, some of the earliest behavioral theories suggested that attachment was simply a learned behavior. These theories proposed that attachment was merely the result of the feeding relationship between the child and the caregiver. Because the caregiver feeds the child and provides nourishment, well, the child becomes attached. Bowlby believed that there are four distinguishing characteristics of attachment. Proximity maintenance, or the desire to be near the people we are attached to. 
safe haven, which is the returning to the attachment figure for comfort and safety in the face of fear or threat. Secure base, where the attachment figure acts as a base of security from which the child can explore the surrounding environment. And finally, separation distress, which is the anxiety that occurs in the absence of the attachment figure. What Bowlby observed is that even feedings did not diminish the anxiety experienced by children when they were separated from their primary caregivers. Instead, he found that attachment was characterized by clear behavioral and motivation patterns. Bowlby believed that the earliest bonds formed by children with their caregivers have a tremendous impact that continues throughout life. He suggested that attachment also serves to keep the infant close to the mother, thus improving the child's chances of survival. Bowlby reviewed attachment as a product of evolutionary processes. While the behavioral theories of this suggested that attachment was a learned process, well, Bowlby and others proposed that children are born with an innate drive to form attachments to caregivers. Throughout history, children who maintained proximity to an attachment figure were more likely to receive comfort and protection and, therefore, more likely to survive into adulthood. Through the process of natural selection, a motivational system designed to regulate attachment emerged. It makes sense. The central theme of attachment theory is that primary caregivers who are available and responsive to an infant's needs allow the child to develop a sense of security. The infant knows that the caregiver is dependable, which creates a secure base for the child to then explore the world. So what are the stages? There's the pre-attachment stage occurring between birth to around six weeks old. The infant at this point won't really show particular attachment to a specific caregiver, though they will show they are pleased with the care and attention they get. Then from approximately six weeks to around seven months or so, the infant will begin to show a preference for primary and secondary caregivers. Then after about seven months or so, the infant will show a strong attachment to one specific caregiver, though they will display positive attachments to others, and by around a year old, they will have a growing bond with other outside caregivers. Some research completed in the 1970s by psychologist Mary Ainsworth went further with Bowlby's original theories. She conducted what was coined the, quote, strange situation study. The study involved observing children between the ages of 12 to 18 months and their response to a situation in which they were briefly left alone and then reunited with their mother. Mary's strange situation assessment followed after these specific steps. The parent and child are alone in a room. The child explores the room with parental supervision. A stranger enters the room talks to the parent and approaches the child. The parent quickly leaves the room. The parent returns and comforts the child. Simple enough, right? Well, after observation, Mary concluded that there were three major types or styles of attachment. 
These are secure, ambivalent insecure, and avoidant insecure attachments. And then two more researchers have added a fourth style known as disorganized insecure attachment. And there's been a ton of studies done, such as Harry Harlow's infamous study on maternal deprivation and social isolation in the 1950s that support these types of attachment and additional research has unveiled that these early attachment styles can help predict behaviors later in life. This is important to us in the true crime community, what we are always striving to understand. So let's talk about these styles of attachment, right? Secure attached children feel comfortable in knowing that they can depend on their caregivers to reunite and comfort them during times of demonstrated distress and they display joy when they are reunited. Let's say a child toddles off around the corner of an aisle in a store. They realize their beloved caregiver is no longer beside them. They begin to cry and that caregiver quickly appears, picks them up, hugs and soothes them and all is well. This is secure attachment. Ambivalent insecure attachment is when the child becomes very distressed when a parent leaves as a result of poor paternal availability. They cannot depend on their primary caregiver to be there when they need them. This is pretty uncommon and sources say it affects anywhere from 7 to about 15% of children in the United States. Then we have avoidant insecure attachments as well. Children with this type of attachment tend to avoid parents or caregivers, showing no preference between a caregiver and a complete stranger. This attachment style might be a result of abusive or neglectful caregivers. Children who are punished for relying on a caregiver will learn to avoid seeking help in the future. This one was mine as a child. And there are several subtypes of insecure attachment styles in adults. There's anxious preoccupied for the people that have an increased need to feel wanted. They tend to spend a lot of time thinking about their relationships lean toward jealousy or idolize romantic partners, and they typically need a lot of reassurance that their people care about them. There is also fearful avoidant attachment style that displays as having conflicting feelings about relationships and intimacy, yearning for a close romantic relationship, but being scared that your partner will leave or hurt you or both. You might push aside feelings and emotions to try to avoid actually experiencing them and believe you aren't good enough for the type of relationship you want. Then there is dismissive avoidant for the people who have a hard time depending on partners or other people close to them, and they prefer to be alone in their solitude. They often feel like close relationships aren't rewarding enough for the effort, and there is a worry of loss of independence if they form close bonds. This is my subtype. So if you're keeping score for yourself, for me, my attachment style is avoidant, insecure, dismissive subtype, for your example. And finally, back to the original attachment styles, we have disorganized, insecure attachment. These children display a confusing mix of behavior, seeming disoriented, dazed, or confused. 
They may avoid or resist the parent. Lack of a clear attachment pattern is likely linked to inconsistent caregiver behavior. In such cases, parents may serve as both a source of comfort and fear, leading to disorganized behavior. Now, research has suggested that the failure to form secure attachments early in life can and often do have negative impacts on later behavior in older children as well as throughout their lives. In fact, children who have been diagnosed with oppositional defiance disorder, conduct disorder, which can lead to a later diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, or post-traumatic stress disorder often show attachment problems. This could be due to early abuse, neglect, or trauma. And some experts have stated that children adopted after reaching six months old have a higher risk of attachment problems. And if you are struggling with any of this, I'm going to attach some source material down in the notes that might help from the site Healthline. There is always help. So what causes attachment disorders? These occur when a child has been unable to consistently connect with a parent or primary caregiver. If a young child repeatedly feels abandoned, isolated, powerless, or uncared for, whatever the reason, they will learn that they can't depend on others and that the world is a dangerous and frightening place. These disorders can happen for many reasons, according to helpguide.org, which include Babies that cry and no one responds or offers comfort. Babies that are hungry or need a diaper change and those needs aren't met for hours. Or the baby feels alone because there is no positive interaction with it, such as talking, smiling, or eye-to-eye -eye contact. Or the only attention the child gets is when they are acting out or displaying other extreme behaviors. Then, of course, young children who are mistreated, traumatized or abused and when they cannot predict that their needs will be met. Separation from primary caregivers or being passed around from one caregiver to another and of course if the parent is emotionally unavailable for a variety of reasons. Now attachment disorders are conditions that can develop in young children who have issues establishing a deep emotional connection or attachment bond with their parent or primary caregiver. Since the quality of that attachment bond profoundly impacts the child's development, experiencing attachment issues can affect their ability to express emotions, develop trust and security, and build meaningful relationships later in life. As we all know in this community, it can also have much deeper consequences. So some early warning signs of a child having attachment disorder include avoiding eye contact. They tend not to smile. They don't reach out to be picked up or held. They reject efforts to calm, soothe, and connect with them, and they don't seem to notice when you leave them alone. They tend to cry inconsolably. They don't coo or make noises. They don't watch people moving in their line of sight. They aren't interested in playing interactive games and they typically spend a notable amount of time rocking or comforting themselves. 
Children who have attachment issues tend to fall on a spectrum from mild problems that are easily addressed to one of two distinct attachment disorders that are recognized in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or what we call the DSM-5. So the two distinct attachment disorders are reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder. Reactive attachment disorder typically stems from early childhood mistreatment or neglect, according to medical news today. Having this disorder can make it difficult to connect with others and manage emotions. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry note that children with reactive attachment disorder may have low levels of interaction with other people, show little or no evidence of emotion during social interactions, they have difficulty calming down when stressed, and may seem unhappy, irritable, sad, or scared when engaged in everyday activities with their caregivers. If the child does not receive effective treatment, the symptoms of RAD, as they call it, may manifest or continue into adulthood. Possible symptoms of the disorder in adults include difficulty reading emotions, showing a resistance to or having a hard time showing affection, low levels of trust, they may have difficulty maintaining relationships, have a negative self-image, display anger issues, have troubles with impulse control, and are often detached. A child with reactive attachment disorder rarely seeks comfort when distressed and often feels unsafe and alone. They may be extremely withdrawn, emotionally detached, and resistant to comforting. Even though the child is aware of what's going on around them, hypervigilant even, they don't react or respond. They may push others away, ignore them, or even act out aggressively when others try to get close. There are two serial killers that immediately come to mind when it comes to reactive attachment disorder, Peter Woodcock and Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, Peter Woodcock is a horrible and yet very intriguing case when it comes to attachment issues. Now, I did a podcast on him quite a long time ago, but I'm going to revisit him due to this subject. But here's the short and sweet, if you will. He was born in 1939 to a teenage girl who worked in a factory. She breastfed him and cared for him for about one month. He displayed feeding problems and cried incessantly. She gave him up for adoption, where he was bounced around from foster home to foster home, and the foster parents all reported that any attempts to bond with the infant and toddler were completely unsuccessful. His attachment issues became so intense that as a toddler, he was terrified of anyone paying attention to him and would make, quote, whining animal noises instead of full communication. And as I'm sure we know, not every foster home was a loving and warm environment, if you know what I mean. He was eventually housed with a foster couple who did try to help him, but he went on to become a serial killer. Peter would be the more intense, extreme version of this attachment disorder. The much more mild version would be Jeffrey Dahmer. 
And sources say that he was deprived of attention when he was an infant by his mother, who suffered greatly from postpartum depression. It was said that his mother was dutiful in his needs with regards to diaper changes, feedings, and whatnot, but wasn't known to just sit and hold and be affectionate toward him. As he got older, he really lacked the want to form attachments to others and was quite isolated, and we are all very well acquainted with his later crimes. So there's a couple of examples. Then we have disinhibited social engagement disorder, which may develop in response to social neglect and a lack of consistent attachment to a primary caregiver during the first two years of life. They may display behaviors such as hyperactivity, minimal social boundaries, extreme sociability, and readiness to approach and engage with strangers. If they do not receive effective treatment, the issue can manifest or continue on into adulthood. So an adolescent or adult with DSED may display hyperactivity and extreme trust of people that they do not know well, a lack of awareness of social boundaries, a tendency to ask intrusive questions to people that they have just met, and other behaviors that show a lack of inhibition. You see, that child doesn't seem to prefer their parents over other people, even strangers. They'll seek comfort and attention from virtually anyone without distinction and don't exhibit any distress when a parent isn't present. Children with DSED often have trouble forming meaningful connections with others. They also tend to be extremely dependent, act much younger than their age, and can appear chronically anxious. Having a DSED can also put a child at increased risk of harm from strangers. The serial killer that instantly comes to mind in this scenario is Eileen Warnos. I just recently did a new podcast on Eileen, so most probably still have the details of her early life fresh in their minds. But for those that don't, Eileen's mother really wanted no part in being a mother, and her father was already in prison by the time she was born. Her mother gave baby Eileen to her own parents to raise. Eileen's grandfather was a strict and mean man who Eileen could never win the approval of, no matter how hard she tried. She was hyperactive and so desperate for love and attention that she would do nearly anything for it. As she got older, this included exchanging sex for friendship, not having that sort of ingrained sense of social boundaries and an obvious lack of inhibition. And again, we all know how her story ended. So, how does disordered attachment issues in childhood manifest behaviorally in adulthood and in those with a propensity towards violence? In an article written by Nancy Thomas for Attachment.org, she stated that attachment impacts violence. She said that research shows that the foundation and root of future violence is set in the first three years of life, where the brain is developing at its most rapid pace. When there is too much stress, fear, or trauma, experts have seen the developmental damage in the brain. Attachment and protective care from a loving caregiver protects the baby and the brain during stressful times. 
Without a trusted caregiver, a baby is in trouble. Abuse, neglect, rejection, or abandonment during the first three years puts a child at high risk for behavioral problems and mental illness in the future. According to the FBI, were nearly all psychopaths abused, neglected, or rejected as children? Absolutely. And while researching this, I found an excellent thesis written by Emily Welka for Regis University titled, quote, An Analysis of the Connection Between Insecure Attachment Style and Bodily Disposal Methods of Serial Homicide Offenders, end quote. I'll link it below if you'd like to take a look. But in summation, using insecure attachment styles as the primary focus and their translation into criminal behavior, the disposal methods of serial killers analyzed were transport and concealment, transport and dumping, no transport with concealment, and no transport as is. The results of this study tended to show that serial homicide offenders with the same attachment styles that they were labeled with tended to use the same body disposal methods, which I found interesting. Jeffrey Dahmer was used to represent the anxious, preoccupied attachment, Donald Gaskins for the dismissive avoidance style, and Dennis Rader represented the fearful avoidant attachment style. Jeffrey and other anxious, preoccupied people tended to all use the transport concealment and the non-transport concealment. Donald, with his attachment style and other offenders like him, used the transport dumping body disposal methods, and then Dennis and his group used the no-transport as-is method. Interesting stuff, I think. The thesis went on to say, that the study hoped to establish a link between attachment styles of serial killers and their body disposal methods. It was a fascinating read to say the least, but it goes to show that there are indeed many factors that can be the recipe for a serial killer and their attachment style as well as attachment disorders can and do play a role in their criminality. So then let's look at attachment disorders and how, if at all, they are related to personality disorders. We know that an adult who is securely attached has experienced a reliable relationship with their caregivers in infancy and thus is capable of adapting to different social situations and maintaining an adequate equilibrium between self-regulation and interpersonal regulation of stress. I cannot stress this enough. Early attachment relations are absolutely vital for how a person processes and regulates stress, attentional control, mentalization, and their overall sense of self-agency. Attachment theory is increasingly being used to investigate and intervene in personality disorders. And actually, many of the features of insecure attachment in adulthood resemble the signs and symptoms of personality disorders. There have been numerous studies of attachment patterns in people with personality disorders, particularly cluster B, including antisocial, borderline, and histrionic personality disorders. In fact, 50 to up to 80% of people diagnosed as borderline fit the attachment style. 
And this most certainly aligns with the rates of childhood trauma among people with personality disorders are quite high, with 73% reporting abuse, and of that 73%, 34% was sexual, and then 82% reported neglect. While childhood physical abuse increases the risk for adult, antisocial, borderline, dependent, depressive, passive-aggressive, and schizoid personality disorders, infant neglect is associated with risks for antisocial, avoidant, borderline, narcissistic, and passive-aggressive personality disorders. Borderlines are more consistently associated with childhood abuse and neglect than other personality disorder diagnoses. But as always, this is by no means an indicator that all people who have suffered childhood trauma will develop a personality disorder, and that's a topic for a whole other podcast. Early trauma has implications for attachment and personality pathology. The hippocampus, which is housed deep within the temporal lobe and plays a huge role in learning and memory, is particularly vulnerable to stress. Borderline personality disordered patients show reduced hippocampal and amygdalar volumes, especially if they have suffered early trauma. There's a lot more super intense science behind how that early trauma lateralizes between the hemispheres, but you get the point. So what can a person do with a child who shows an attachment issue? Doctors may recommend treatments such as family therapy and Hopefully, the adults who are supposed to be the bonded caregivers are willing to go. Individual psychological counseling. There's play therapy where they would learn appropriate skills through interacting with peers and handling social situations. There are specifically designed programs within schools that can help them learn skills required for academic and social success while also addressing behavioral and emotional difficulties, though, depending on the school, this is hit or miss. And then finally, parenting skills classes. So, I said all of that to say this. Children need our attention. Now, I understand that people are going to parent using the methods that they most believe in. But for me personally, and come for me if you want, hold your babies toddlers and children. Get down on their level, eye to eye, and smile at them. Tell them you love them. Show them that they can count on you. And if you make a mistake, as all parents do, own that mistake and admit it. And now here's a novel idea. Apologize to your child for it. Even for the people that aren't particularly fond of children, It is always still good to be kind and offer a sincere smile. We were all children once, wanting to know unequivocally that we were adored absolutely, that we were safe and protected from scary things, and that our parents or caregivers loved us above all. And those of us who were never really certain, well, we could potentially grow up to do very bad things. Thanks for listening.